Hello and welcome to Miss D's Lunacy. Today I have a gentleman that is an amazing producer and musical composer. His name is Greg Arnold and he has the most interesting stories to tell you. Please welcome Greg. Thank you so much for coming, Greg. Thank you for having me, Miss D. Well, I find you so interesting because you've done so many unusual, unusual things. There's stories about you all the time. But we're going to start back. I always start back from the beginning when you were a child because you told me that from 8 to 12 years old, you were in Chicago doing lyric opera, correct? That's correct. And you loved it. I did. It was an amazing experience. I can imagine. And you must have been doing this in some big hall or some church or something. What was it? The Chicago Lyric Theater. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The Met of Chicago. It's a great great company. Wonderful. And then you ended up going to Vassar. I did. And then you have a wonderful story about Leonard Bernstein. Please tell us about (laughs) it. It's divine. I was taking a master class at Vassar with a composer called John Cage, who was famous for among other things, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, which is a, uh, a composition that uh, embraces silence. And I had the opportunity to meet Lenny Bernstein at his house. I knew his daughter, and there was a fun party there. I asked him what he thought of John Cage, among other things. And he told me John Cage had expanded the universe of composition, classical composition of the 20th century, but that he had never written a decent piece of music in his life. I thought that was amusing. Interesting. But all of a sudden, you saw him play, and you... Well, that's how it started. He sat at his piano in his living room, and he had two pianos back-to-back. And my friends started poking me in the side, saying I should sit down on the other piano and play with him, which uh, I did. He was just playing some blues. It was, it was very easy. It was a lot of fun. He was uh, very encouraging. So that was probably a very exciting opportunity to meet one of the greatest in music. So you were very, very lucky. But I think you said to me you went to Juilliard as well. I took master classes at Juilliard after Vassar, but I never uh, enrolled in their program. I was working already. But I took several arranging classes and worked with teachers who I'd also met on the job doing commercial work. So tell me about that. What aspect of that? Well, you have so many, but first you were also working with all of these singers, which is extraordinary, but you you were doing commercial and you were doing... Well, I started out touring in, in my 20s with many R&B bands. Ended up recording with Vanessa Williams and Diana Ross and the Pointer Sisters and touring with Evelyn Champagne King and Shannon, Let the Music Play, Gwen Guthrie, and a lot of people who are no longer heralded but should be some amazing singers of the 1980s and what a fascinating time for you it was great it was an interesting perspective on white and black america being pretty much the only white guy in the band i got an education in what it was to be non-white in america well i think that was probably a really interesting perception for you to understand but what i love that you told me was that they called you the professor (laughs) Well, I suppose, yes. Well, I think it's wonderful because you were always tour. I mean, you are German from descent, correct? I am. And so you were always interested in touring and finding interesting places to go in museums and things of that nature. And they always thought it was absolutely amazing because they were fooling around doing their own thing and you were often doing something else. 
Well, Europe was an interesting time in the 1980s, and there was a lot to see and took an interest in it, and I knew a lot of the history and was lucky enough to have an education that gave me that knowledge, and so I shared it with my bandmates, that's all. How exciting. I it mean, was. that's just exciting, and you were playing keyboard at the time, correct? I was, yes. And we're going to hear a little bit about his keyboard just for, for you to understand his music, so we're going to go ahead and put it in there. So let's hear it. Now, you also did music for television and film. I did. I still do. I know you do. But what was this commercial also that you were doing, these commercials? Well, I did years of commercials for Miller Beer and American Airlines and Coca-Cola and Buick. And my first commercial was for Maybelline, of all things. It was a great career, and it was a time when my particular skill set was very applicable. I understood the keyboard, and I also understood the computer technology for sequencing music. And that was all new and very much desired by TV producers and film producers. And... That was my expertise for several decades. And you were ahead of the game, sort of, since it was I very was new. on the cusp, yes. Yes, you were on the cusp. That's extraordinary. You did Versace, Prada, Yves Saint Laurent, Coca-Cola, and also you did the voice of Macy's. That's what I, I am the voice of Macy's in some cases with some clients right now. So how, how, what did you do? Because they wanted a New Yorker, a Spaniard, New Yorker? Well, <laughs> I, t- I do some of it in Spanish, yes. Okay, so do, let's uh, do, it, do it in English and then do it in Spanish. It's well, wonderful. Well, it's, it's pretty basic. The new fragrance, the new fragrance from Paco Rabanne, available at Macy's, your fragrance destination. Pretty basic, Okay, no? Spanish. Uh, La Nueva Fragancia de Paco Rabanne. Disponible en Macy's to Destino para Fragancias. 
Oh my God! Oh, you should have been an actor as well. This <laughs> is absolutely. You wonderful. look up actor in the dictionary. It says sea waiter. Ah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> now there were two things that you did also that were so fascinating. You spent a week with Miles Davis in Peru. I did, as a young. 20-year-old, basically not playing music. He was my hero, but listening to him in his hotel room, of course, with his trumpet, but taking him on swimming runs and shoe shopping errands around Peru while his wife, Cicely Tyson, at the time, was a judge in the Miss Universe pageant. Wow. And I I was involved in a business that brought the Miss Universe pageant to Peru, but was not terribly interested in it until they called me and asked me if I wanted to babysit some guy called Miles Davis. He was my, still is, one of my musical heroes. So and he, he said, absolutely. So I was on the next plane to, to Lima. And it was, it was pretty amusing. He told me uh, incredible stories about introducing Bud Powell to Charlie Parker and his cars and his... He had had an accident on the West Side Highway where he turned his Maserati over at 90 miles an hour, Ooh. and that's why he had to swim every day, because he broke both of his tibias in that accident. Nobody knew him, and he was not drinking or taking much in the way of drugs, so he was lucid and fascinating, I think. So you got a part of him that most people didn't get I got to a see. very special look at the man. And then, of course, five years later, I was working on some projects where he came into play. CD 101.9, the radio station, was going to do and did an ad with him and photographed him and recorded him. And, of course, I told everybody in the studio what great buddies we were. And when he arrived, he had no idea who I was. (laughs) So that was... uh, But he was also drooling a little bit, unfortunately. I think he was back into his habits of New York. He was an amazing musician and an icon of of American 20th century music and sadly not not heralded as the god that he, he is. Well, that's a shame, but you at least know... Such is jazz music in America. Well, that's unfortunate, because it was very popular one time. Yeah, it was, but it's... Why do you think it's waned? uh, It's, I don't know. It's a different... There's all kinds of cultural elements involved, I think. There was a lot of disdain for the background of jazz, and I think it was embraced in a, in a much better way in, in Europe and Japan, certainly, than in America. But there but, was a lot of it in the 20s and 30s. Sure. And there were so many amazing tap dancers and jazz. And I mean, all the movies were, were fantastic with Shirley Temple. Yeah, that's and, a good point. There was, a, there was some of that. But there was, a, I'm sad to say, a racial component, I think, for a lot of that as well, that made a lot of the great players move to Paris and, and Denmark and places so like that. interesting that so. they'd like to go over there. You were telling well, me there that. was no bias, really, there. Isn't that amazing? It is. But it's sad. I mean, American... I mean, Aaron Copland is our greatest classical composer, probably, in America, and he's, he's not part of the standard fare for any orchestral schedule, like Beethoven and Bach and Brahms are. I mean, he should be... He should be right there. Stravinsky, sort of American. He was Russian originally, but anyway, anyway you know. But how interesting. Our, our pop culture doesn't 
doesn't have room Well, I think for now the pop culture's talent. gotten a little bit out of hand, as you call it pop culture, because jazz was definitely a firmament in this country. Yeah. And then, you know, then you had these young girls running around doing different... So in the, each era, it was very, very different. There was the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and that whole 70s wild time at Studio 54, El Morocco. They were all these different... Remember disco? Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, disco was... I caught the tail end of disco. Yes, we did. And then La Macarena and <laughs> mm. all of these things. We used to dance at Regine all the time. I remember. And it was so much fun. And so people... And then Yana Avis did La Macarena and everything else. We were all dancing did together. Did she? I didn't know that oh, she, she did. did La Macarena. Yeah, she did a whole dance song and number. I mean, she's quite talented. So, Miss D, where do you dance now? You know, I dance at home. <laughs> I really do. I have dinner parties and we all start dancing. I kid you not. That's cool. That's cool. I have a wonderful friend who is a, a singer. He was a choir boy when he was much younger. His name is Franco Corso. So in the middle of dinner, I decided to just snap people out of it. And I put on his song, Je t'adore, t'adore. I mean, it was so... People all jumped up and started dancing and Was waltzing. he there? No, unfortunately, oh. I had his CD, but and he's very busy because he's absolutely amazing. But he did get to get 90 minutes of Donald Trump's attention at Mar-a-Lago by singing, I did it my way. <laughs> but he is such a beautiful voice. He gives you shivers. And so I put the music on as much as loud as could be. And we're all dancing and dancing. And I thought, oh, clever girl and clever boy. And I mean, I listen to him just about every single day. And he is going to be on the show when he's available at some point. He lives in Florida now. And he's magnificent and sings beautifully. We'll have to look from Franco Corso. Franco Corso. Okay. He's divine. Now, you did something else that was amazing. You were two and a half months in a film in Brazil with... <laughs> well, with Antonio. Antonio Carlos Jobim and a number of other... Milton Nascimento and Gilberto Gil and a bunch of amazing, amazing people. Well, how fascinating! I mean, well, it was, it was uh, yeah, we were filming. We we were filming all over Brazil, and they were part of the part of what was being filmed. It was sort of a it wasn't really a feature film. It was more of a I think they call it a docudrama or something. But then I was writing the music for it, and I told them, you know, that part of hiring me meant they had to bring me on location so I could get a a feel for what the Brazilians call jeito. For the, for the culture and the music and the life. I wasn't going to miss that. So that's what I, that's what I did. Your passport must have a lot of visas in it and oh, everything else. Well, from the 80s anyway, yes. It was an interesting time. So you own a house in Guadalajara. I do. It was my mother's house. Wonderful. And right now you're doing something even more interesting. You're doing the music for Stephen King film. Yes, for a short story called The Things They Left Behind, which is about 9-11. Oh, dear, and, that's uh, very scary. It is. It is uh, it's, a, it's, it's creepy, which makes it fun. And we're recording the orchestra in, in Prague, which is cost-effective, but also should be... They're great players. They work with a lot of Hollywood people. I think I'm their first New York composer. But it's the Prague Philharmonic, and they've assigned me a wonderful arranger, a crew of people, and it ought to be great fun. Oh, that's very exciting. And when are you going to Prague? The end of next month. How fabulous. Now, you also did something that we haven't talked about, but you have 
I went to your studio, which is fantastic. We're going to talk about that. But there's like 20 awards of music up on the wall, like really high up. Thank goodness I'm tall. I mean, they're sort of hidden. I'm going, okay, what did you get all these musical gold discs award? Can we mm. talk a little bit? I mean, you must have 20 awards throughout your career. Well, I, yeah, it's, I mean, that and the Don't Metro card gets me on the subway. I mean, it's just for record sales, for work I did either as a, an engineer or uh, as a, an arranger or a keyboard player. It depends upon what record. But, yeah, I, 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 had a, I had a recording career when there was a recording career to be had. And the business has changed so much that... I don't think it's even possible to sell a million records anymore. I think it's uh, well. Unfortunately, people don't have a record player it's, anymore. Well, it's downloads now. It's, and it's downloads and, and streaming it's... and all this nonsense. But you know what's fascinating about you is that you get to do what you love the most. This is true. This is the, my joy in life. And, and I think, I think that what you so anyway. I'm when blessed. You, you are blessed. You're blessed because you're good looking. You're blessed because you're talented. <laughs> you're blessed because you have incredible stories of your life and that you're really good at what you do and that's God a bless. bless you miss d well it's absolutely what are you doing later well i'm going to be listening to our show and having you back on okay. and i'm going to try to get some now what also fascinates me is you do post-production audio and fixing them which i thought was fascinating fixing them well yeah. we, we well yes, you we sort of mix. tweak them and you mix and well it's a very specific skill set i have people I, I i work with on my team but it's dialogue editorial for film it's sound effects and what's called foley which is somewhat complicated it's easy to explain but the job of doing foley on a film is very time-consuming and takes a lot of talent, but it's basically replacing the sounds of movement and gunshots and and replacing dialogue, which is called ADR, which is a kind of uh, technique for cleaning up a scene if you've got a great performance but horrible audio. And audio, many people don't understand, makes film... Good audio makes a film look better because you keep people in the realm of fantasy. If you and have horrible, in what you're doing, yeah. it's a continuing story. But but if you have horrible audio in a film when you're watching it and you hear you hear some anomaly or you hear some some distanced voice that that is that doesn't match what you're looking at, typically it takes you out of the the fantasy of the experience, and that really can ruin a film. And it's just a lot of new filmmakers think once they've shot what they need and they have it in the can, as they say, uh, they don't have any budget left over for post-production audio, and that, that's the most foolish thing you could do is, is not pay attention to that. Spoken like a true audio guy. Well, it's amazing you're not in L.A., because frankly... At one point, they were doing lots of movies in New York. Well, they're back to New York is coming back online. There's a lot of sound stages now that, that are just outside, but in Queens and in Jersey and Chelsea Piers, of course. And there is there is work that's being done there. But yeah, LA, I, sh I should be in LA. I just don't, I'm not going to trash LA. I just, no, it's not No, you it's have not to my, be where you want to be. Yeah. But so if you're redoing a dialogue of, let's say, one scene or what, how long does it typically take? Because you have to have a gaff, you have to have the sound replaced with sound that sounds better. And then you have to sort of fool around with all of that. And then you have to, they actually have to talk 
in a studio without being in the actual scene that they are yeah, in. Is that's, that... that's called dialogue replacement. That's right, a pretty but it's, standard it's, thing It's not always Hollywood. understood by people. No, I think most people don't realize when they, especially the larger budget films, that 90, well, it depends, but often 90% of the dialogue that they're hearing that are coming out of the actor's mouth occurred much later. Isn't yeah. that fascinating? But it's it's... There's many reasons for doing that. There's an, uh, I won't get too technical, but there's a thing called a music and effects mix, which places like Germany and France require for internationally distributed films where you don't have the American dialogue available, but you have all the sounds in the scene available. So you have to replace every bit of production sound. Production sound meaning the sound you record when you record dialogue uh, because you're going to replace the English-speaking dialogue with German. So that's dubbing. But dubbing doesn't just automatically happen. They have to have, you have to, as a sound, post-production music and, and audio sound producer for film, you have to provide the film company with a music and effects only mix, no dialogue might sound simple, but it actually means when you pull dialogue, you have to replace everything else that you pull with it, which is all the ambient sound of the room and all the doors closing and opening and gunshots and blah, blah, blah. That has to be redone so they can dub German on top of it or French or, you know, whatever. whatever it's very complex, actually. It Usually it's German, French, Spanish, and, and Chinese and Japanese. The other countries don't have a large enough audience for the distributors to, to bother, and they use subtitles instead, which is in some ways better, and it's why many Scandinavians uh, speak English better than, than other Europeans who haven't had the benefit of having to listen to the English and read the subtitles. Interesting. Is, I think that's interesting, yeah. I do, too. Yeah. Now, when you're at your keyboard, which I thought was fascinating, is you had pictures of rooms. Whether it was a basement, a closet, oh, that's, that's that's just uh, I know, but it's it inconsequential. Was, no, it's but just, then you could make the sound from well, your yes. Work. Well, it's just a reverb uh, plugin for uh, our software. People don't understand that you actually want to make a room sound very, very voluminous and very open. You can actually do plug, it digitally. Do yes. it digitally, which is yeah. incredible. If you're sort of in a phone booth, you can't have it sound like you're at the symphony. It's true, yeah. You've got to make it so into yeah. a teeny look. Not that people use phone booths anymore, but No, but they have they have, yeah. There's a lot of digital technology that's uh, remarkable in what it can do. And you know, it, it has its dark side because the interaction of real musicians for instance is losing ground and i think people discount the spiritual and emotional interplay of musicians playing ensemble ensemble as it were as opposed to what is often done now which is to imitate strings with samples and bring musicians in one at a time you have more control and that has its benefits, but the spirit of music is is really uh, about live interaction. That's the spirit of jazz, anyway. It, well, that's very and true. orchestral music as well. It, very beautiful, very true, and very well said. So, how many songs have you actually written for movies? Because remember, uh, John Barry did it for many of his yeah, movies. Yeah, I, I haven't. Philip Glass, I believe. That and I've written a few songs, but I'm more of a, a composer writing the scores. 
So the songs are often chosen separately, and they're sometimes considered source music, which is a different kind of cue anyway. But I mean, I've written, a, you know, I've written some, some songs. I don't know. I have no idea. How, but how it's many. amazing. I mean, it's a talent that most people don't have. And by the way, this is a true fact, people who do music are, of course, very mathematically inclined, by the way, which do you agree uh, with me? Completely yeah. mathematical, which I had no idea. And they live a long time. <laughs> do they? Do they? So I hate to tell you you're going to be wow. around for quite a They absolutely okay. do. Okay. Unless some... you kill yourself with alcohol or, or an overdose Well, of since heroin. none of us do that. <laughs> but music really does bring so much joy to people. And the people who are making it up themselves and writing all day and making sound supposedly live a lot longer. And I've never heard that, but I'll, well, I'll, I I'll embrace that concept. And, you know, I don't repeat things that I haven't really checked out. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Because otherwise I'd be sounding rather silly. But I have talked about this in people who are actually in the music business. You know, Well, your audience is going to be Googling it as we speak. Probably, sure. and if I'm, if I'm wrong, just pl please email me or to talk to me or comment on me. Now, you have done... Musical composing, you've been in the opera, you have been singing with Diana Ross, Shannon, Gwen Guthrie, you have done all of this with keyboards, you've been on the road forever, so you've probably been sort of somewhat around America in a bus. I have. <laughs> very, very interesting to travel through the South, again, as the only white guy in, in several bands and coming into contact firsthand with some serious racism. I'm sure you didn't want to necessarily talk about that. No, but, but it, I think it's really it sad. Gave, it gave me a perspective. Well, it's sad, it's, it's, it's angering too, but it gave me a perspective that I probably wouldn't have had as just a product of, you know, boarding school and fabulous college to experience firsthand even biased towards me as, as a white guy hanging out with black guys. But that seeing, you love them. They were your buds. Oh, no, I mean, it was a privilege to, to be considered capable as a musician to be to keep up with them. and, and it, They probably you know, thought you were supposed to be carrying their equipment. <laughs> well, you know, we had roadies. Most of the crew was white. In fact, I think the, I can't, not, not that it matters, but, you know, the crew was pretty much white and uh, the band was was black and and just you know to to see the south and see i mean even in the early 80s when we were we were in the south there were still still places that had they weren't used anymore but had signs that said black entrance white entrance or colored you know colored Ugh. colored bathroom white bathroom Arp. And, you know, some serious racial comments uh, slung at me on a number of occasions that uh, I won't repeat, but nonetheless were, were mind-blowing. It's and, amazing uh, that when you probably got on stage, you said, sir, you're in the wrong department. You should be with the no, crew. They were, they were, no, it was, uh, I don't know. Europe was, was interesting because there's a very different attitude. In fact, the girls liked all the black guys, and they didn't like me. So and that's to, impossible, as far as I I'm had, concerned. I had to work work harder. I'm anyway. sure you did. Now, you told me for American Airlines, there was a 90-piece orchestra. Yeah, we did that at the Oh, this is an unbelievable factory. story. Well, not really. I mean, at the time, this is in the late 80s, I guess, when I started doing advertising, they had budgets for those kinds of arrangements. So, and... I, I. So where did all this ad and orchestra occur? Well, I studied uh, classical. I was a classical music 
composition major at Vassar. I actually I had to I had to double major. My father wouldn't have paid for my education. He told me, so I was a philosophy major and a uh, classical composition major. And in fact, that I took pictures at that American Airlines uh, session and sent them to my father with a little note saying, "See how far my philosophy degree has gotten me." Oh, so, how I mean, fun. not as not to be obnoxious, just to be but cute. But where was this ninety-piece orchestra? Was it in New York? Was yeah, it... no, it was in New York at the time. There was a studio called the Hit Factory. Unfortunately, it's now condominiums <laughs> on 54th Street, but a very uh, famous complex of studios, actually, in, in several different locations in New York. And for a while, they had a very large recording room on 42nd Street they called the Annex with a beautiful Neve 8068 uh, recording console. Nobody knows what that is, probably. Tell us what it looking. is. No, it's just a classic uh, late 60s, fabulous-sounding fabulous recording console with incredible amount of maintenance required, but it was a joy to record through something like that. And, and they had a big room with called the Deca Tree, which is a kind of mic array. It's, it's far too technical. There's the, the, the two musicians that are listening to this might understand, but anyway, it was joyous. It was a big group. I had Don Sebeski, who is uh, somebody I also studied with, who conducted for me, and it was a lot of fun. And, and they, it went off without a hitch. Yeah, pretty much. The only hitch was that I had ordered a massive amount of food from Balducci's uh, just for me and five clients from the agency. Chocolate-covered strawberries, I'll never forget this. I had this beautiful spread laid out, and I hadn't worked at the Annex before, and I didn't realize that the, the main studio had a door that opened up to where the food was spread out. And I had to spend uh -oh. an extra five minutes, ten minutes, tweaking the mix after the musicians had finished playing. And when we came out to our spread, it was gone. Gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, dear. Which is hysterical. So I just called up Balducci's and ordered another one because that's the kind of budgets we had then. But I remember being really upset with my fellow musicians who knew that that wasn't their food. But when 90 <laughs> people pass a fabulous spread, you know, and, and they're musicians, you know, it will be gone. Anyway. Well, American Airlines still exists, I believe. It does. It does. But I don't know. I think they, they probably still hire orchestras on occasion. I hear that sort For of thing. For their advertisers. Yeah, but they, the, the producers I worked with are long retired. So Why do uh, they need 90? I mean... Well, it might be a 50-piece orchestra, but, too. But it's but very dramatic. I mean, It's orchestral. I mean, they use... Uh, is it United that uses the, the Gershwin? Ba-da-dum-bum. Ba-dum-bum. Ba-ba-dum-bum. Right then. It's so the, funny uh, that they would use... Rhapsody in Blue. That's 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 United Airlines. They they and that's fully orchestrated. Lots of different arrangements of it. But, I wonder why airlines uh, do that. Well, because it's recognizable and they can afford the. God knows what licensing fee it is for that for that music. And I love the new Coca Cola ad. Um, Have you seen it? It's the girl grabbing the Coca Cola bottle. She's in midair, flying across, and this Coca Cola bottle is sort of painted like Peter Max stuff. It's just. Oh, I haven't seen it, but oh, yeah, no, my. they're very clever. I don't know who the current agency is for them. It was, I think, it was McCann for ages. Well, I had come but, up with my two ads for 
John Deere, and which I told you about, which you thought yes. were pretty funny, but I wouldn't be able to tell them because somebody's going to steal my. Idea. No, yeah, don't don't put them out there. No, I'm not. I think I'd like to tell because their story. agency will take it as their own. I believe yes. it. I believe <laughs> it. So you did what you wanted to do. You did all these voiceovers for these m- fabulous things. You got to play music. You got to compose. My goodness gracious! I still do. I'm not. I, I'm not. I'm not over yet, baby. I never said that, but I'm talking about the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, I never yeah. said you were going to stop. Now I forgot to mention one thing: the name of your company is absolutely hysterical, <laughs> because people are going to want to hear where. What What is it called, and why did you do that? It's called No Fat Creative. Yes, and, and it, because well, and because we originally started out as an agency working directly with a lot of clients, and we. We were using a major Madison Avenue creative talent, freelance, and we figured that it was uh, brains without bulk. You know, when 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 has a building ever had a great idea? But it, you said creative juices, no fat. Yeah, well, that too. Yeah, we've had a lot of different. And I just looked at it. And said, that's the strangest name I've ever. <laughs> but people remember it, so that's why we creative decided. juices. It's probably no at fat. my ripe old age at this point, I, I should change it to something corporate. But and you I've, are at thirty seven West thirty seventh in your beautiful we studio. We are. And you have a website of some sort that people can come and talk uh, we're to you. And we're in more constructing but sure you can send us info at nofatcreative.com is a web address you can use if you have flash you can see some of our old work at nofatmusic.com we're slowly constructing a site at nofatcreativeny.com uh, that's not quite built yet. So well, that's incredible because people find you though. Yeah, well I have a I have a nice core group of clients that that keep coming back so that's, well, I think that's so exciting. That's encouraging, anyway. And so your Stephen King film will be very exciting. Yeah, I think I, it'll be a nice... They were trying to get it done in time for, for 9-11, but obviously that they got they got messed up on some... Uh, Technicalities. Uh, yeah, on, on CGI, it's called. But, but anyway... It will come out eventually and I'm so happy and proud that you're doing all this and thank you so much for joining Misty in this adventure of yours which is going to continue for quite some time. Well thank you Misty for having me. I appreciate it. You're more than welcome and as I said you're rather talented and you should be very proud of yourself and your father bless his heart would be very proud of you as well. So we end our show sadly. I hope you liked his little music because it's all fabulous to me and uh, do not forget lead us not into temptation we can find it ourselves have a wonderful day god bless